See, I just babble till you guys settle in. That's my strategy. <laughs> um, if, you, if you do have Bibles with you, please open to Acts um, chapter 22. We're going to go verse 22 all the way through 2311. So that's starting at Acts 22, uh, 22. I do, there, we are going to look uh, pretty darn closely at the text today. Um, so I do recommend having a text in front of you uh, of whatever description. Um, let's pray before we begin. Jesus, I pray now that for those of us who are discouraged, for those of us who are struggling, for those of us who need to hear encouragement from your word, that that's what we would hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Um. So some of you guys know I used to, uh, b- before, before I was a pastor, I, I did music for a long time. And um, of all the records that we ever made, there was one that, that we worked a lot harder on than the rest. And um, part of the reason was that the, the, the fourth record we had put out was a, like a big disappointment. It had sold 100,000, which I realize is a lot, but for us that was catastrophe and it means we, we were, like, not going to eat. And so we were, like, really eager. We got we to gotta turn this around. We got we to gotta get a hit record. Um, and so we're like, all right, we're done messing around. We're really going to do a good job. And I wrote 50 songs, 50 to get 10 good ones, all right? Like, like it was day and night. We were hustling. We, uh, we worked the, the, the best songs we had with arrangements. We hired a, a really good producer that costs a lot and a good studio also cost a lot. This record cost a lot because it was important that we have a hit record. And so by the time we were done, I, we had three surefire hit songs on it. Like, can't deny it, can't miss. These songs are awesome. Uh, you know, uh, Eat Your Heart Out, Paul McCartney. Um, <laughs> and and, um, and, you know, we, we pushed the label to really promote it. Now, the, the record that was such a disappointment, the first week it sold 10,000, and that's typically your biggest week, right, As, and, and it kind of goes down from there. So it's like, okay, if, if, we, if we can get a little bit above 10,000, you know, if we reverse that trend and, and we could sell more than we sold last time, good. It'll all pay off, all the hard work. And so we got our first week's uh, sales and it sold 1,300. Thank you. Thank you for feeling my pain on that. It was, it was not just like crestfallen, it was like, oh my gosh. Because if we had just phoned this one in and it sold that, it'd be like, whatever, we didn't even try. But this is the best we could possibly do, and I failed, right? I don't know about you, but I don't feel that my culture has prepared me well for what to do with failure. I think the best answers we have around failure is only if you succeed bigger afterwards. It's like, yes, my business failed, then I started Microsoft or whatever. That's the only, like we, we could deal with failure once we succeed bigger than we failed, right? For, for most of us, you know, if we, if we have a home improvement project that we fail at, that's hard for us to cope with. We're told failure's not an option, right? Failure means you're a failure. We don't really know what to do 
with failure. In fact, our fear of failure is so intense that many of us will not even try for fear of failing. There's some of you that will not hit a dance floor because you are afraid that you're going to suck at it. Some of us will not ask a person out because you're afraid of rejection. Some of us will not endeavor something for the kingdom, for a business, for whatever, because of our fear of failing. It is better to not try than to try and to fail. It may be in ministry efforts, whether it's vocational ministry or in lay ministry. Something that you had hoped, you prayed for, you thought God was calling and God probably was calling, and you gave it your best effort, and it did not do what you had hoped it would do. At your career, you may pour a lot. I, I know a lot of you guys. You work very hard at your jobs, and I'm guessing that, oh, 95% of you feel like you've failed so far, and you're not where you hoped you would be, and that especially compared to that one person you know who's doing so much better than you, you're a total failure. And you're sure that the person sitting down the road from you is killing it. <laughs> Sorry, is this uncomfortable for anybody? <laughs> you may be on the other side of a failed marriage. You tried. You tried to make it work, and it failed. And that hangs over you and terrifies you about trying again. It may not be marriage, maybe another, just a, a dating relationship or a long-term relationship. A lot of you are parents, and your kids are not doing the things that the parenting book said that they would do if you did A, B, and C, right? Maybe you've got older children, and they've struggled with mental health in their career or whatever, and you fear that you are a failure as a parent. When we face failures, many things swirl through the soul. First of all, there's feelings of worthlessness. That the reason I failed is because I'm not good at what I do. I'm not good at being a parent. I'm not good at being a business person. I'm not good at ministry or whatever it is. That's our first thought. We like to hang, we like to, to beat ourselves to death with that stick of failure. Another thing that we often think is that, well, clearly God was not with me. Because if God was with me, forever. And we may be especially tempted, and I hear this, we may be especially tempted towards unfaithfulness. Your marriage is failing. Why should I remain faithful to this? Why should I keep trying? Why should I steward my sexuality the way that God says when this is failing? Why shouldn't I let bitterness and discouragement overtake me? Why should I persevere through this difficulty when it looks like failure is coming anyway? Why try again if I've failed once? We are tempted greatly to unfaithfulness. What do we do with failure? We're going to take a look at a text in which we're going to see the Apostle Paul do something that we haven't seen him do. Fail. Fail horde. It's a spectacular failure. Look with me at verse 22. 
It says, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Okay, so where is Paul right now? He is explaining and preaching literally for his life. He's addressing a crowd that, that just before this was beating him, trying to beat him to death before Roman guards intervened. He asked to address them. He's trying to do two things. He's trying to defend himself against the charges, and he's trying to share the gospel at the same time. We've seen Paul do this before. He's really good at it, okay? And he's addressing his own people here in Jerusalem. And so it says they listened, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. I've given some bad sermons in my time. Not one of them have someone, has someone said, rid the earth of this dude, he's not fit to live. That's about as bad as a sermon can go. It says, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander, that's a, a tribune, ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. So Paul, did he defend himself? Did he exonerate himself? Did he get free? Failed on that count. How many converts? Zero. We're always told after Paul gives a sermon, there was these people who believed, right? Nothing. So that's a pretty decent failure. He gets himself retaken into Roman custody. And he's about to be whipped. Now, don't think like cowboy whip. I don't know if cowboys have whips, but this is a Roman whip, all right? Romans were very good at torture, and uh, it would be a big wooden handle with leather straps coming off it that would have nails and glass and, and I don't know if they had glass, but whatever, pottery in there so that you would hit someone on the back, their, their naked back. Paul is stretched out for this, and then you'd rip the flesh off their back. Most people died from this, uh, if they didn't die, then they were going to be hobbled for life. So that's what's about to happen to Paul. How's his day going, guys? Is this a good day? So he, as he stretched out for the whips, in verse 25, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Okay, Paul saves it. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. So Paul lets slip, he's a Roman citizen. When the Romans, if you were a provincial, a non-citizen, they're like, yeah, beat him to death. It doesn't really matter. Human rights, not a thing back then, guys. Um, but if you were a Roman citizen, you had, they, they, were very, they were sticklers to the law, and you could not flog a Roman citizen just to find out what's going on. That was, the, that was the plan. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. And this, this refers to um, under the emperor Claudius, there was a great deal of corruption. And you could buy citizenship uh, from his wife. So that's what this is referring to. This guy saved up money for a long time so that he could uh, become a citizen. And then a, a tribune, he had risen quite high. Um, it says, Paul, Paul says, but I was born a citizen. Uh, it, it happened time to time that provincials could, if they were from prominent families, be given citizenship, and then that's inherited. So Paul got it somehow. 
Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Now, Paul is still going to be chained up, but this, the word for these chains are these very heavy chains. It was a punishment in and of itself to wear these chains. So he went from the chains of punishment to the chains of just regular old chains. All right. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. All right, so the, the tribune, the guy who's in command of this garrison, still wants to know what's going on. Why are these people calling for this man's death? And so he has him come before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish high council, uh, the next day. Now, for those of you who have been here for the series, when's the last time we saw someone stand before the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts? The answer is Stephen, back in chapter 7. How did it go for Stephen? Stephen is famously the first martyr of the church. Okay, so do you see the threat here of what could happen if Paul says a false word? Not only that, but the last time we were with the Sanhedrin, Paul was part of the Sanhedrin. So on one hand, Paul, there's danger for him. Sanhedrin was known to beat people to death or condemn them to death. On the other hand, these are his people. If Paul knows how to talk to anybody, if Paul knows how to defend himself and share the gospel at the same time with anybody, it's this particular group. He knows many of them very probably. It says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. He doesn't get past his first sentence. I break your concentration, right? <laughs> How's that going so far? Not off to a good start. Paul makes it worse in verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. He's right, right? And, and yes, Paul is showing some temper here. You get smacked in the mouth. It does tend to make one irritable. Um, it says, those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Guys, if you're trying to win over the Sanhedrin, to get them to set you free, you don't insult the head of the Sanhedrin, the high priest. This is going from bad to worse. Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Paul knows that he has stepped in it, right? Now, why couldn't Paul, why didn't Paul know this was the high priest? There's a few possibilities. We're not sure. Uh, it could be because this was an emergency meeting, they all just showed up. High priest was not wearing his high priest robes, just saw a dude. Also, there was a one family that rotated high priest. It was very corrupt. And, uh, and he may not have known which member of the family was high priest that year. Also, it could be possible that Paul, as many scholars believe, had very bad eyesight and just couldn't see who said what. Um, but clearly, this this slam dunk of a speech is, is clanking off the rim. 
Paul's not doing very well. So Paul changes tack. Look what he does in verse 6. He says, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, just so you know, I brought a little slide for you to understand the differences between Sadducees and Pharisees. We see them in the New Testament, so here we go. All right, laser pointer, it's back. All right, here we go. So the Sadducees, um, these would have been rich nobles in Jerusalem. They were aligned with the Romans, right? They were benefiting from this Roman occupation, so they liked the status quo. It kept them wealthy, it kept them privileged, as long as they kept both the people and the Romans happy. Um, and these were kind of the elites, so they were heavily influenced from outside. They were heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, which is why they denied things like the resurrection, right? The bodily resurrection that, that Jews believed in, um, among other things. Things that were unacceptable to kind of the Greek-educated class that Rome had in it. They, they, they kind of, they, they reconciled their Jewish faith to Greek philosophy. Making sense? That's who those guys are. You kind of get a picture of them, right? Now, the Pharisees, um, these are not necessarily elites. They're going to be more middle class or artisan class, some poor. They are going to be viciously anti-Roman and pro-Jewish nationalism, all right? So they don't like the status quo. They want an independent Judea. Um, these are the, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the scribes that you hear about in the New Testament, um, these are people who were going to be more religiously orthodox, and they're not going to be in Jerusalem. They're going to be in the synagogues, right? The synagogue is not the temple. These are meeting places where they, they worship and teach the word. All right, so together, they compose the Sanhedrin, a, a lot like uh, we have a very divided political system where people are at their throats. Magnify that to where you get physical violence, and you've got Pharisees and Sadducees. They are mortal enemies, all right? So Paul perceives that some of them are Pharisees, some are Sadducees, and so he tries to at least get the Pharisees on his side. He's like, I'm a Pharisee. This is all about the resurrection of the dead. Okay, good strategy. I mean, he was losing the whole crowd. He at least can get half on his side. But look at verse 7. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Not unexpected. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. Okay, all right, kind of salvaging things. Get some of the room on your side, but then there was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Okay, now they're taking a side. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. How'd that turn out? If you were hoping to be free, if you were hoping to give a defense that was going to help people hear the gospel and was going to get you out of chains, how did it go? How's his last two days been? Paul one of the great preachers in church history 
in his wheelhouse speaking to groups he knew how to speak to, fails. Fails to get free, fails for, any, for anybody to come to Christ. Look with me at verse 11. And we're going we're gonna to really slow walk through verse 11 because there, there's a punch here. I don't like any of the translations. It says the following night. It makes it sound like it's the next night. It's that night. A better translation would be, and then night came. All right? Those of you who have had a heartbreaking day know that it gets worse when night comes and you're by yourself in the dark with whatever sick-to-your-stomach emotions are going on in there. But Paul, I doubt, it, I doubt many of us have been chained up in the Antonia Fortress. That's where Paul is. Remember, he took a, a beating the day before. How's his body doing? Probably not great. He's coming off two of the most disastrous speaking <laughs> attempts he's ever had. And, and, and we know that Paul wanted to go, he wanted to go from Jerusalem over to Rome, right? He wanted to keep preaching the gospel, and now it does not look like he will leave Jerusalem alive. Where are his friends? Not with him. How does it smell in the Antonia Fortress, in the cell that they use for locking people up? You think they keep that thing spick and span? Think they give you a bucket to go to the bathroom in? Probably not. Can you imagine sitting there? You want to go for a walk? Too bad. You're chained. How's Paul feeling? He's got to be at his lowest. And then night comes. Nothing to read. There's no Netflix for him to watch to get his mind off of it. He is sitting there alone with his failure, with his heartache, with his disappointment, with his dashed hopes says, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul. So if you're Paul, you're sitting there in the dark, and at some point you become aware that there's someone else in the room with you. It's at, at this moment that Jesus appears bodily, either in a vision or in person, doesn't matter. Who else has he done this for in the book of Acts? The answer is nobody. But when Paul is at his very lowest, when Paul has failed, that's when Jesus stands by him. What does this imply? It implies that Jesus has been aware of what's happening the whole time, doesn't it? He's not like, hey, Paul, just checking in. How are things going? No, Jesus appears to Paul here very intentionally because of what Paul has just gone through. Let me ask you this. Is this just for Paul? Why is this included in the book of Acts? Is it, is it just for one person? Or is this to show us, God's people, who Jesus is and how he's with us even when we cannot perceive him? So think of what that means. It means even when we fail, even when we are at our very lowest because we have failed at whatever, it means that Jesus is with us when we fail. Jesus is with us when we fail. You may not perceive him, but he is with us when we fail. 
Do you guys know what a, a moon bow is or a dark bow? You ever heard of this? We were watching, and my son, of course, knows. Uh, but we were, we were watching a program where they talked about dark bows. And what a dark bow is, is it's just like a rainbow, except it refracts the light of the moon. And you can get this, right? And, and it's every bit as colorful as a rainbow, but refracting the light of the moon. It's all there. But the interesting thing is if, if you or I were to see a dark bow, you know what we would see? Nothing. We would see just a gray arc. All those colors are actually there, but we lack the ability to perceive it. Right? We don't have the right eyes to see it. When we face failure, a lot of the time we just see the darkness. We just feel alone. That's all. But if we had eyes to see, we would see that when we fail, Jesus is with us. Not, not just in a way with us, actually with us. In the same way he was with Paul, while Paul was tanking in front of the Sanhedrin and in front of that crowd, Jesus was with him the whole time, aware of what was happening. Now, let's listen to what Jesus says to Paul. It says, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. Now, take courage. What does that mean? It means good job. It means that was awesome. A little more like that, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna win state, young man. Right? It's like, yes, yes, you did exactly what you're supposed to do. Full success, Paul. Take courage. Why? As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, and we're going to read the rest later, but for Jesus, the outcome is not Paul's problem. It's his problem, isn't it? All Paul had to do was testify about Jesus, which is what he did. It doesn't matter that Paul failed to succeed at this. He was faithful. He did what needed to be done, even though the result was failure. You see that? Jesus not only is with us when we fail, Jesus approves of you when you fail. So what does that mean? It means that that moment when you have completely, whatever, you're doing a project at work or at home or, or what have you, and you have just stunk up the joint with your failure, you're sitting there talking to yourself like, a, like a, you know, you're beating a rented mule, and Jesus is saying, I approve of you. There was a time when grace and peace didn't look like it was going to survive the year. This is a few years ago. I don't need to tell you that I am preaching to myself mainly today because I have a hard time with failure. I was not sleeping that well. I was greatly discouraged, and my self-talk was, it sounded like Ice Cube doing a diss rhyme. That's how my self-talk <laughs> sounded. I was talking to my spiritual mentor, uh, a guy named Craig Garriott, and, uh, and I was telling him how I was worried and, and how I, I, you know, wasn't sleeping well and how I was just really down. And uh, he didn't give me any advice on how to fix it. Here's what he said. He says, Matt... Jesus loves you. Jesus is just wild about you. Jesus thinks you're doing awesome. <laughs> you know, those, those, that was some of the best medicine for the soul I've ever heard in my life. It's not that I needed to figure out a way to not fail. 
It's more so that I needed to hear someone tell me that even when I fail, that Jesus still approves of me. And I'm telling you now, even in the midst of your failure, of your business, of your marriage, of your parenting, of your mar- whatever it is, Jesus is with you and Jesus approves of you. And the other thing, and you guys are going to have to really pay attention now, is that when it comes to Jesus, failure isn't necessarily failure. I'll tell you what I mean. All right. This is going to be fun. I like this part. All right. In Acts chapter 19, Paul said that he wanted to go to Rome. He's planning to go to Jerusalem, then go to Rome. Okay? Where does Paul want to go? Rome. Thank you. Somebody was paying attention. (laughs) Paul wants to go to Rome to preach the gospel. And also, we know from the book of Romans in the 16th chapter that Paul was planning to go from Rome to Spain. Why, you ask? You are all asking that, right? It's because for Paul... Spain was the ends of the earth. Jesus, at the beginning of the book of Acts, says you're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Paul's like, I'm down for that. So it was the the dream of his heart to take the gospel to Spain, the ends of the earth, but first going to Rome. You with me so far? At this point, how's Paul doing with that? He's not going to leave Jerusalem alive. In fact, in the next chapter, we find out there is an active plot by the Jews to kill him, right? They were planning for him not to leave Jerusalem alive. He failed to beat the charges, right? It it, it depended on him being able to defend himself in the Sanhedrin. He could have been set free and moved on, and it didn't work. And so now Paul is assuming, and he's willing to be martyred, but he's got to be disappointed, right? Right? Did you see what Jesus says here? He says, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So what you just did in Jerusalem, so you must also testify where? Do we have the verse? In Rome. What did Jesus just say? You didn't fail. In fact, what we're going to see is that Roman custody is going to be Paul's ticket to Rome. Jesus is going to use his failure to get him to Rome, right? Not only that, we're told in chapter 9, when Paul is first, first comes to Christ, that, that he is going to be God's instrument to bring the gospel, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, and, he says, to kings and rulers, The rest of the book of Acts, we're going to see that while Paul's in custody, he's going to be called before kings and rulers. So instead of failure being fatal, it's instrumental. This is how Jesus rolls. Jesus uses failure. Right? It's kind of like... um, uh, 12th century sometime, the city of Pisa in Italy, they, they wanted to, to build something because they had just sacked their rival city, Palermo. They're like, we just got all their loot. We're going to build something with their loot. And they build a new cathedral. They're like, yeah, we'll honor God with this stolen stuff. 
Um, and, and, and part of it was they were, they were building a big bell tower to be part of this cathedral. And about halfway up, it started to settle on one side because it was very uneven, uh, soft ground that they were building on. And they were like, oh, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm Italian. I can do this. Oh, no, it's leaning. And then the, one of the architects is like, it's okay, I fix. And he's like, we're just going to build it higher on one side, and then it'll even out. And so they did that. They finished out the tower, and it leaned further. And then, uh, like, 100 years later, another guy was like, I, I fix now. And, and he, he tried to fix it, and it made it lean further. And, and they just all failed. And this thing is a cat catastrophic failure. You don't lean, uh, make a tower to lean like that. But, of course, this is the leaning tower of Pisa. And so that failure today is now a World Heritage Site. Five million people a year visit it, and it pulls in 21 million euros. Right? They used the failure. Jesus does the same thing. He uses our failure. Those of you who have failed at something in ministry, lay or, or, or vocational ministry, you think that stopped Jesus from accomplishing what he intends through that? Those of you who are afraid that your missteps in parenting are going to completely destroy your kids' lives forever. Right? Like, do you think Jesus is actually like, oh, man, I was really going to do something for, for these, these people. I was really going to do something with your kids. I, I really can't now. You know why? Because you failed. No. Right? Like, that, that's what we tell ourselves. That's not true when Jesus is involved. Jesus uses failure. So when we fail, Jesus is with us. He approves of us, and he uses failure. So what are we supposed to do? Well, when, when we're in that place where we are tempted to walk through our failure in an unfaithful way, to believe lies about God, to believe lies about ourselves, to think that, that the fate of the universe, the world, my life, and everything else depends on me, that's unfaithfulness. When we're in a place where we're ready to compromise morally because, you know what, this is failing anyway. It's to fail faithfully. It's to fail faithfully. There's a temptation. There's a temptation to obsess and beat yourself with your failure. That is not in keeping with the gospel. There's a temptation to morally compromise. There's a, like, a lot of us know, like, when, when there's an endeavor that's not going well, there's a temptation just to, just to quit. And you know you shouldn't. You know that you need to see it through. To fail faithfully is to see that through. Or to try again when God calls. There's a temptation to call yourself worthless, who God has called worth dying for. There's a temptation to question whether or not God loves you at all. Failure can make you struggle with your faith. We need to fail faithfully. Jesus is with us when we fail, he approves of us when we fail, and he uses failure. One of the most famous failures in U.S. history was the uh, April 9th, 1942 surrender at the island of Bataan, um, resided over by a guy named Edward P. King. It's the largest surrender. We can show his picture. There we go. There he is. General, officer, Major General Officer Edward P. King. He is the answer to the trivia question, what is the largest surrender in U.S. military history? Him. 
surrendered 78,000 troops against orders, surrendered the entire island of Bataan to the, uh, to the Japanese forces that they were fighting. Sucks, huh? How would you like for your name to be the answer to that trivia question? One of the most spectacular failures in history. But hang on a second. Why was it Edward P. King commanding the surrender? Because Douglas MacArthur was actually in charge of this theater. You want to know why? You've all heard of Douglas MacArthur, yeah? He escaped to Australia. He left Edward P. King and the troops in the lurch. In a losing situation, when the going got tough, Douglas MacArthur got out and left it to Edward P. King. Now, why would he surrender if he had so many troops? The answer is, they were out of food. They were out of ammo. They were in strategically bad position. They, 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 were, they were all going to die for nothing. So he had the choice of resist an impossible foe with no food, no artillery, and no ammo, or surrender them and save their lives. So he made the choice to surrender. Here's the other thing. Why is it only his name associated with this when you had many commanding officers, high-ranking officers, and other generals around? You know why? It's because Edward P. King did not want a single other officer to be the answer to the question who commanded the largest surrender in U.S. history. He wanted to bear it alone. That's what it is to fail faithfully. Instead of taking the shortcut, he, he failed faithfully. When we face the temptation that comes with failure, there's a temptation for us to, to walk unfaithfully through that. But Jesus is with us when we fail. He approves of us when we fail. And he uses failure. Please pray with me. Jesus, I pray that you would set us free of our fear of failure. That we could take comfort and confidence from the fact that you are with us and approve of us. Even when we don't approve of ourselves. And that we, even when we fail, cannot frustrate your plans of redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.